this morning. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. As we continue our study, we find ourselves this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. Chapter 9 of Isaiah, we'll look through chapter 9 verse 8 through chapter 10 verse 4 is our text this morning. And I can say pretty confidently this morning uh, that no pastor wakes up on Monday looking forward to the following Sunday and chooses this text to preach if he's doing topical preaching. Um, But here at King's Chapel, we're committed to expository preaching, going through books of the Bible, and that kind of forces us to deal with hard passages, tough passages, and also help us to grow, uh, grow in our faith, stretch our minds and our hearts in the Word of God. So that's where we are this morning. I want to I want to read the text this morning kind of a little bit different than we have been doing. I want to read the text. I want us to, to feel the, 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 the sense of this text. Uh, I want to hopefully we'll see a, a greater glimpse of the holiness of God, his, his anger towards sin, but also his glorious grace and mercy toward the sinner. And that's the gospel, sin and grace through the gospel. His name is Jesus. So let me read to you chapter 9 of Isaiah. Bible's in the back. Verses 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. Now hear the word of the Lord. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezid against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail Palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head. The prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray. And those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men. Has no compassion on the fatherless and the widows. For everyone is godless and evildoer. And every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles and thickens the thickens of the forest. They, they roll upward in a column of smoke. Though through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but they are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh together. They're against Judah. For all of this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice to rob the poor of my people of their right. That widows, may be, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment? In the ruin that will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains 
but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all of this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Quickly, context, remember the Syro-Ephraim War. Israel, ten north to the, uh, Israel, the ten tribes to the north, also known as Ephraim, Israel, Ephraim, joined an alliance with Syria. Syria is right above Israel. They joined an alliance because the Assyrians, Assyrians over to the northwest, were gaining power and authority in the region, and they were afraid. So Israel, known as Ephraim, and Syria joined forces together, an alliance to fight off the threat of Assyria. Not only did King Ahaz of Judah, which is the northern kingdom, not join with them, the king of Judah sought an alliance with Assyria, did not join Syria or Israel, but with an alliance with Assyria, the world power of that day. Rather than trust God, they went behind their brothers back, the northern kingdom, and Syria, and joined an alliance with Assyria. That's what's going on. And therefore, not only did God allow, we've been seeing over the past few weeks, Assyria to come in and to crush Israel, Assyria crushed Israel and Syria, but he also allowed the Assyrian army, the ones that were joint alliance with Judah, to actually march into Judah, into Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, to teach Judah, the northern kingdom, King Ahaz, a lesson to trust God. Although Israel would be destroyed by Assyria, God did not allow that to happen to Judah. They, they, God put a stop to it before it was too late. We saw last week in chapter 8, verses 11 and following, God now turns his attention through Isaiah to speak to Isaiah and his disciples. And he tells Isaiah to stay clear of the conspiracies that are going on in the nation and not to be afraid, but to honor and to fear and to revere the Lord. For then God will be his sanctuary. God will be his refuge as they wait and hope on him. Verse 11, 12. But for those who refuse, God says through the prophet, will stumble, fall, and be crushed. Chapter 8, verse 14. Last week we saw there will be some who are afraid of the future will seek the dead for the living. Verse 19 of chapter 8. But in the end, there will be distress. And hunger, verse 21, darkness, gloom, and anguish in chapter 8, verse 22. Those who don't want to obey the word will only have darkness, gloom, and anguish. But praise God, we saw last week as we concluded that that's not the final word. God is not done with his people. And chapter 9 opens up with God's wonderful grace that he will send in the midst of their darkness, in the midst of distress and gloom, a great light to Galilee. The person will multiply the nations, increase its joys, break the yoke of burden and oppression, and do away with all the wars. Chapter 9, verse 6 tells us who it is. For, us to, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from the time forth forevermore for the zeal, the passion of the Lord of hosts, sovereign, almighty, will do this. 
Isaiah is given this great privilege, this single prophet given this great privilege of becoming, excuse me, of proclaiming the beauty and the glory and the power and the majesty of the eternal reign of Christ given to us thousand years before he comes, that Jesus is the king of kings, the son who's born, the one whom David was promised, who will sit on the throne of an eternal kingdom, and he will reign in perfect justice and righteousness. Wonderful verse. Then all of a sudden, chapter 9, verse 8, God now turns and speaks a word about his anger. How he will discipline his children, for their good and his glory. And that's what we see in chapter 9, verse 8 and follow. And we'll follow it under four headings. Each one of these headings, if you look at the scriptures, you will see each one of these headings end, I'll show you, in a repeated verse. It's the same verse repeated over four times. Chapter 9, verse 12, 17, 21. Chapter 9, 12, 17, 21, and chapter 10, verse 4, all end with the same verse. For all of this, his, that's God's, anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. We'll see God's anger toward self-confidence. We'll see God's anger toward leaders who mislead. God's anger leads then to self-destruction and to helplessness. Uh Uh-oh, is right. Perceptive. <laughs> God's anger towards self-confidence. Chapter 9, 8 through 10 speaks about Israel, also known as Jacob, and their outlook of this destruction that's going on around them as God allows uh, Assyria to come in and march on them. Their destruction, their perception around them uh, is not one of reality. Now, if you look in your Bibles, it says Jacob and Israel. Jacob is another name for Israel, if you remember Jacob was a man who was one of the patriarchs. His name was changed from Jacob to Israel. He had 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, that's why the nation Israel is referred to as Jacob. And their attitude, Israel's attitude, probably shortly before their complete destruction, was very simple. We could change this. We could do something. We can we turn things around. We could make things better. They say if someone knocked down the wall, that's okay. We're not just going to merely rebuild a wall. We're going to finish it with dressed stone. If, if an invading army comes and takes down and cuts down the sycamore trees, Israel says we'll plant more valuable trees. We'll put cedars in their place. Israel is saying in these verses, verses 8 through 10, that they could by their own resilience, by their own resourcefulness, turn disaster into self-accomplishment. But what they fail to realize is that when God speaks a word, when God speaks a word, nothing can stop the plans and purposes of God. In fact, the verbs here in chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, in the Hebrew are in the perfect tense. So in other words, in the English, they should be read and understood as completed action, past tense, done in the past, already happening. In other words, it's assured in the mind of the prophet. For the one, he says, who declares this word against Judah, excuse me, against Israel, backs it up with his omnipotent power and sovereignty over the world. Notice in these, in these verses, 8 through uh, 12, this first section, there's not one single mention 
about asking God for help, crying out to the Lord. Israel believed they can fix their own problem, everything themselves. There, there's this self-reliance, this self-confidence that flies in the face of God's word. And I want to tell you also in this context that the prophet Amos and Hosea, another Old Testament books in the, in the Bible, those two prophets were preaching against Israel both at this time and before this time. They had their own prophets, just like, just like Isaiah is mainly a prophet to Judah. They had their own prophets preaching and prophesying against Israel, pronouncing judgment unless they repent. They were well aware of what was going to come, but they refused to lean on the Lord, trust in him. And let's be honest, when we think we can do things ourselves, we can fix things our own, our own ways and our own strengths, we have the resources, we have the talents, we, we have uh, uh, all we need to accomplish what needs to be done, we're not really interested in helping God, uh, uh, asking God for help, I should say. Pride, self-confidence, then, summons God's anger. Verse 11 is God's response. If people want to remain in their pride and their self-confidence, they don't want to turn to God. They don't want to humble themselves and ask God for help. God says, I will raise up, I will strengthen, and I will send in the adversaries against Rezin, king of, that's the king of Assyria. See that in verse 11. The person he's referencing to, the, the enemy of, of Rezin, was, if you remember, the Assyrian army. Verse 12 seems to indicate that it's not only the Assyrian army, verse 11, but the Syrian army and the Philistines will also devour Israel with an open mouth. And, and this, this clearly demonstrates for us that God is sovereign over all the nations. I mean, do you see what's happening here? God is taking the enemies of his people and using them to chastise and discipline his own people. And as long as the people did not repent, the punishing hand of God was outstretched on them and, and wrath was being executed. God is, 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 uh, the God of the covenant is uncompromising in his demands of, of right living and right conduct and, and right behavior. He's not going to stand by and let his name be dishonored. And without true repentance, look at verse 13. If you have your Bibles open, I hope you do. The people who did not turn, if without true repentance on the part of Israel, God wasn't going to turn. Verse 12b, and all of his anger has not turned away. If they're not going to turn, God's anger was not going to be turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. What's interesting is that phrase, his hand is stretched out, is used in the Exodus when God delivered his people multiple times to show forth his power and authority and his sovereignty to deliver his people. Now, Isaiah is saying to Israel, you've been warned, you've been told, judgment is coming, and now that same stretched out hand is against them. They have been warned. That if they continue, wrath would come, judgment would come. But the message that was repeated by Isaiah and the other prophets that I mentioned were all to no avail. God is angry. God is angry. That may surprise some of you. God is angry. Why does the Bible speak of God's anger? Why does verse 19 talk about God's wrath? You see, without wrath... Mercy is pointless. Without wrath, God is not 
Grace is not needed. Without wrath, there is no gospel. Without anger and wrath, you'll never and I will never perceive, perceive and understand the need to be forgiven, to be justified before a holy and almighty God without wrath. Grace is pointless. You know, we get angry towards sin all the time. And we, we think our anger is justified. Yet we, not, we, we don't give God the same capacity to be angry when he is sinned against. God gets angry because he loves us. God gets angry because he is good. You may never heard that before. But unlike us, his anger is always justified. God's anger is not like ours. It's, it's not explosive or unjustified selfish anger. His wrath, his anger is not an irrational outburst, hot temper explosion like, like the, the father you may have, the mom or the boss you may have. He's not, that's not God's wrath, God's anger towards sin. Is, it's perfect and just. A, a good definition of God's wrath is the settled God's wrath is the settled, unchanging anger and displeasure that opposes sin. It is always righteous. It is always just. God's anger and God's wrath is the response of his holiness toward wickedness, sin, and rebellion. Now, listen carefully. A God who is not angry with sin, not wrathful against sin, one who doesn't care about the evil things that are going on in his own creation. A God who does not administer justice is not a good God. It's not a God worthy of our worship. Even as sinful and selfish we are, we know that a good judge and a good parent hates to see and gets angry toward those who, love, who, who, who abuse and, and sin against those we love. And we fail to see that, both, that God both loves and is wrathful at the same time. We don't understand. Because we don't understand that anger many times is linked to, we've talked about this before, with love. Anger and love go together. That's why it's not always bad to be angry. It's a natural response to things that, that threaten you, that threaten those you love. And sometimes even, even aggression is appropriate anger to defend the people that you love. I said this once before, if you never get angry, you're not human, you're a Vulcan, you know what I mean, on Star Trek. People get angry because they are, because they love. But here's the difficulty. Because I'm selfish, because I'm prideful, I see God's anger, I see God's wrath on those people that deserve it. Right? Those people, they really did bad things. I mean, I could understand God's angry with them, right? Yet if we were with Isaiah in chapter 6, and we were brought into the throne room of God, where God is, where the seraphim is crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, we would be like Isaiah, undone. And we would see our sin as God sees it. Our sin, yours and mine, when brought into the presence of a holy God, is putrid. All sin is abominable to God. All sin is contrary to his nature. All our sin stains our souls and degrades humanity's dignity. It's, uh, scripture calls it filthiness. Scripture calls it a putrefying corpse. We should not take it lightly or dismiss it flippantly. 
God is angry, he says here, and his hand is outstretched against those who, who flip a middle finger to him and say, I don't need your help. I don't want your help. I can do this my own way, and I can do a better job than you can. I'll be fine without you. James tells us God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Israel ignored that. Let me ask you all a question. The curtain around your own heart. Are there bricks that are crumbling in your life? Are, are you, are you, are you, is it loosening in your life? Are you, are you trying to fix yourself, the problems you face with your own strength? Are, are you trying to rebuild things yourself? Try you might. It might even stand for a while, but remember, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And God could send a hurricane. God send, could send an earthquake. God could send an army to teach us to be humble before him. He is, his, his, he is unlimited in ways he could humble us and show us his sovereignty, his majesty, his dominion, his power. For all his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 12. As we move to the second Point, God's anger toward leaders who mislead. We see in verses 13 through 17, God deals with leaders. The one who are called to take responsibility over the nations, to care for them, to protect them, to provide for them, have now misled them. Verse 14 talks about the head and the tail, the branch and the reed. Uh, they're, they're, they're contrast, speaking of completeness, right? You got the head and the tail from one end to the other. Branch and reed, tall and short, top and bottom. Isaiah both says... They both will be cut off. Verse 15, leaders, the elders, older ones. The elders, not necessarily you think of elders, you think of pastors, but elders in Israel, which is older men, wise men, who would give counsel and wisdom to the younger generation. But they became too smart for their own good. And in their wisdom, they neglected God, which really isn't that smart, right? Dr. Oswald in his commentary says this, that pride and arrogance, which exalt humanity, issues in an adulation, excessive devotion, of the great men of their society. But that very adulation, excessive devotion, renders them, these, these great men, these, 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 these uh, uh, wise men, renders them less and less able to lead their people. Why, he says, for just leadership can only come from persons who know their weaknesses and corruptibility, end quote. These elders, verse 15, these prophets were not only speaking, teaching, giving false wisdom, but look what it says in verse, um, verse 15, verse 16. Those who are guided by them were also swallowed up. Right? Those, look what it says. Those who, those, who, those who are guided by these false leaders, these, these leaders who mislead, are swallowed up. Are swallowed up. Now, those who lead, we know in Scripture, have greater accountability. And yet those who being led also have accountability. Jesus said in Matthew, if the blind lead the blind, both fall into the pit. There's responsibility. Everyone's responsible for their choices. We're all responsible for our choices. We're responsible who we listen to and who our leaders are. 
We're held to a higher standard. James tells us that we will be judged with greater strictness. But Jesus also said, woe to the scribes and Pharisees, those leaders. He calls them hypocrites. He says, you travel across the sea and the land to make a single proselyte or, or a convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Leaders, be careful. Now, verse 17 may be a little surprising to you because God has always has compassion on the widows. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over the young men and has no compassion on the fatherless and the widows. It sounds like he's turning his back on them. Not if you understand the seriousness of sin. Not if you understand the, the, the nature of God in his holiness, in his perfection, and, and the certainty of God's repelling nature towards sin. It says God usually does rejoice over young men. He, 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 uh, men who serve him with integrity and courage, but the scripture says there were none. God loves the fathers and the widows, but not when they're in rebellion. Not when they're in rebellion. In fact, from leaders to orphans, from teachers to widows, all of them, it says here, repeatedly rebelled against God. Look, uh, re- rebelled against God. Look at verse 17. Again, verse, uh, the second part of 17. For everyone is godless and evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Like, really, Isaiah? Everyone? All the time? Well, Way back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord looks down on the earth and saw, it says, the Bible says, and saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sin is serious. Leading people into destruction, it, not, it, won't, it, won't, it won't be overlooked. And you may be here this morning, some of you here this morning thinking, you know what, Pastor, I, I'm, not, I'm not buying all this sin, anger, and wrath. I'm, I'm kind of doing what I want to do. I really don't care about God. That's what godless means. I, don't, I really don't care about God. I really don't care about his word. I'm my own master. And in fact, I'm doing what you would call evil and sin and wrong. And you know what? I'm doing just fine. It doesn't appear, it doesn't appear to me that God is even angry or mad at me at all. If you're here this morning, heed this warning. That God's wrath and God's anger towards sin is both a passive wrath, wrath and an active wrath. Active in a sense when it's being done, but there's a passive wrath of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 8 says this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Who's Jesus? Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul goes on to say that God's passive wrath is seen, that's, that's, that's chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18. Paul goes on in chapter 1, verse 24, says that God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. That God, verse 26, God gave them over to the degrading passions. God gave them over, verse 28 of Romans 1, to a depraved mind. When God turned you over, to do whatever you want, and you think I am in the clear, actually, you're not. You're not excused from his wrath. In the end, everyone will pay for every sin they've ever committed, either on the back of Jesus, or you will pay it yourself. 
God knows our deeds and misdeeds. And quite honestly, some people are living in delusion, thinking everything is okay. I'm going to be just fine. But listen, it is the Father who chastises and disciplines and works with his child that still has hope. The one who looks at a child and says, you're going to do what you want, you just go and do it. They're in the greatest position for trouble and pending disaster. That's God's passive wrath. Let's you do whatever the hell you want to do. And that's why I I said that word distinctively. Because when you do whatever you want to do, you do what hell wants. Verse 17c, for all of this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. God's anger leads to self-destruction. Verse 18 through 19 speaks of burning, two burning fires in Israel. The first one has to do with sin. Kindles thickens uh, with, for wickedness, excuse me, about wickedness. The second one has to do with God's fire of, of his wrath in the land, if you see that in verse 17. Uh, excuse me, verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, kindles, verse 19, through the wrath of the Lord, the land is scorched. Actually, fire is a good and suitable metaphor for sin. It's destructive. It, it burns when it lights on fire and the dry thorns and briars. It's swift, it's intense, and it burns. It's unquenchable. And God here also involved with the land, causing the land to be, to be burned, whether it's literal, whether it's metaphorical, the point is, God is doing it. It's not a bad politician. It's not a, it's not a bad leader at this point, or an accident, or, or luck. It has to do with God's hand. Wickedness is not a little mistake. Sin is cosmic treason against God. It advances like a fire, and then it's consuming, and it keeps burning, and keeps burning, and it's unquenchable in its appetite. Just read the Bible. Adam and Eve, chapter 3. Eat of the fruit. Sin enters in. Turn the chapters. Brothers kill one another. Keep turning the chapter. Lemek uh, takes two wives and murders a man for insulting him. Chapter 6, as I mentioned before. All the people all over the earth, all the time are evil. It's just, it's continuing. It gets to the point in verse 19 in our text. People don't even care about their relatives or their neighbors. All hearts have grown cold and hard with sin. They're, they're lustful, craving for meat. Verse 20. So overpowering that even it, it's a picture of feasting on flesh. The tribes of Israel are consuming one another. This metaphor of self-destruction. This metaphor of, of disintegration, of, of, of national unity of the brothers of Israel. Brother against brother. Manasseh against Ephraim. Ephraim against Manasseh. Two major, two the largest tribes of Israel going after one another and, and, and symbolizing this family destruction, this fighting, this infighting. And not only are the main tribes unable to get along in our text, verse 20, but look what it says, verse 21. Together they're against Judah. The only thing they have in common is let's beat up the other brother. The northern kingdom, Ephraim and Manasseh, fighting one another, and then they turn and fight their younger brother, Judah, or the southern brother, Judah. Family, if we turn on one another in the church, if we're not committed to loving one another, caring for one another, listening to one another, praying for one another, strengthening one another, stirring one another up, as the Hebrew says, onto good works, 
if we're not preaching the gospel to ourselves and to one another regularly, we will consume one another. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Galatia, chapter 5, verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, he's talking to the church. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Unchecked sin will destroy relationships. Sin always separates. Verse 21c, for the third time, for all of this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Finally, number four. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we see God's particular anger, anger reserved for the legal system going on in, this, in Israel. The, those who oppress the poor and, 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 and the, uh, the, the helpless and make themselves rich. Talk about application. In a world characterized by human arrogance and this, this idolization of leaders in our country, denying the existence of God, and just people who are straight up hate biblical principles and the people who hold them, it'll affect those who are helpless. And we see here the leaders are making unjust laws that strip the poor, the widows, the orphans, out of their, the little bit that they have, rather than protecting them, rather than helping them and providing for them. And this outrageous injustice that's going on inflamed the heart of God. Moving him, look what it says, verse 3, to bring judgment from afar and bring a devastating day of punishment. And on that day, these tyrants, these, these oppressors who, who are hurting the poor and the helpless, what are they going to do? Where are they going to run? What good will their possessions do and help them in any way on that day of judgment? Nothing, verse 4, remains but to crouch among the prisoners of fall among the slain for all of this. God's anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Verse four. So let me ask you a couple of minutes here. I want, I want to look at verse three and end with that question. What will you do on the day of punishment? What will you do and whom will you run to flee? Who will you run to and flee to for help? If you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Christ, the question and the outcome will be different for those who have placed their trust and their faith in Christ. For example, King David trusted God, but yet he sinned against Bathsheba and her husband. God was not pleased with that. 2 Samuel 11, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Yet David's horrible sin resulted in the most intense act of genuine repentance in all the scriptures, Psalm 51. Because in God's grace, David responded to God's anger toward his sin with repentance. David, King David, was justified in God's sight by grace through faith, just like we are. He looked forward to Christ. We are trusting Christ. You see, God hates sin. God, God knows that sin not only dishonors him, but it ruins us and damages us. As Christians, when we sin, Ephesians 4, it says that we grieve God with our sin. First Thessalonians 5 says we quench the Holy Spirit with our sin. First Thessalonians 4 says there are some behaviors that please God and some behaviors that displease God. Displease God. Brothers and sisters, in Hebrews chapter 12, God explains to us what happens when believers sin. We are disciplined for it. 
My God, my son, he says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he approves you, reproves you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons, as daughters. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So let me be really clear. God does not look upon his children when they sin with wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 When you turn from your idols to trust in the living God, we wait for the Son from heaven, it says, who raised Jesus from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's Christians. First Thessalonians 5. For God has not de- destined us, believers who trust in Christ, has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel teaches us that God will never disown you. He will never, ever stop loving you. You will never, ever, ever have to earn his salvation, your salvation. Like David, we see that our decisions and actions matter. God responds. God disciplines those he loves, and he responds with us in our discipline only as a means to restore, to renew, and to help us grow in our holiness, more like him. Although God is not pleased when we sit, he never looks on us with wrath, and God never looks upon his children with contempt, disdain. He can't. He doesn't look upon us contempt, disdain. He's always for us. He's never against us. He's always looking to restore and bring us to himself. But, family, listen to me. God's purposes are different. God treats differently those who turn on him and want nothing to do with him, who have no faith in Christ. Why? Because the Bible teaches us in 1 John that we're that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. There's no truth in us. John continues to write and says this, I'm writing that to you so that you don't sin. But if you sin, if you summon God's wrath because of your sin, listen, he says, John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So follow me. Jesus Christ goes to the cross and he went there to pay the price and endure the penalty in the place of sinners to take the right and righteous wrath of God that is due, not just for our sin, but sinners. When God sent Jesus to die and pay the penalty for our sin, God stored up wrath and punishment against sin when was unleashed upon God's own son. And on the cross, as Jesus died, as darkness surrounded Calvary, judgment day, and God poured out his wrath, his just wrath upon Jesus. He cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? It's not ultimate and final abandonment, but in that moment, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, 2 Corinthians 5, bears our guilt. In that moment, the, 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 he faced the deep and furious wrath of the infinite God for a season. And he drank 
in that, in that time, drinking of the Father's wrath. The cup of wrath, Jeremiah 51, Revelation 14, so that we can be forgiven. That's what propitiation means. That's what John is talking about, that someone must pay when injustice is done and sin is committed and Christ dying in our place, we impute our sins to him, he imputes his righteousness to us and he dies in our place. All of us, all of us will stand before God under his deserved just wrath and condemnation and yet Jesus in the gospel, that's what the gospel is all about, he steps in and takes the wrath for you. That is what propitiation means. It is the absorbing. It is the appeasing. It is the adverting of God's wrath. Right wrath towards sin and anger. So the question changes, doesn't it? The, it changes the answers and the outcomes of the question. Where will you go on the day of judgment? Who will you flee to on, for help on the day of judgment? For those who acknowledge and repent of sin and run to Jesus, place themselves completely upon him, trusting in his work on the cross as the only means of salvation, we will say on the day of judgment that God's wrath was poured out on our Savior, on our Lord, on our King, and he rose from the dead. He will be our help. He will be the one who takes our judgment. And here's the truth. We'll stand before Jesus. You will either pay for your sins yourself or God will pour out his wrath on you forever or Jesus Christ paid the penalty for you. It's that simple. He's either your eternal God who paid the debt or you will pay it yourself in eternity in separation from God in hell. The cross reveals sin. The cross reveals the holiness of God. But the cross reveals also the question of God's love. The love that God has, the cross reveals how wide and how long and how high and how deep God's love is. That's what it took to satisfy his holy justice, the full payment of the debt of your sin, my sin. This is what it took God to love the world. The offering of his only sons. Followers of Jesus Christ rejoice in the gospel this morning. Rejoice in his love and his grace in Jesus' wrath-absorbing sacrifice. So now wrath and judgment turns to discipline and love. Magnify his name among the nations. But if you've never repented and trusted Christ, I implore you this morning, trust him. In love, he took your place. In love, he died your death. In love, he bore your wrath. Yes, he will discipline his children in love but never his wrath, but we are helpless without him. We are without hope without Christ. I implore you, turn to Christ this morning. Turn to Christ this morning if you've never trusted him. His love is available in the sacrifice of his son. Let us pray. Father, it is, it is, a, it, it is a more harder, it is, is a harder recognition but lord we pray that you would open our eyes to see that you are holy and we are not that you are perfect and we are not and and you're calling us to perfection of which we are not and therefore your anger and your wrath is poured out against rebellion and hatred of our one creator let us not be deceived we get angry as well when we see people we love how much more you who are our creator, seeing the sin against you and the sin against one another. But Lord, thank you that your 
wrath has been absorbed. Thank you that you sent your son to take our judgment. Thank you that you poured out your anger and wrath toward us on him. And he has taken it for us and rose from the dead. And now he is seated, exalted as the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And he's calling all people everywhere to come and repent of sin and to trust in him. Lord, we pray as we respond now in music, Father, that you would get glory, that we would have faith in Jesus together as a family and worship you as the one true and living God, Savior of the world. Thank you for all the work you have done and continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.